I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 22. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king." And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanaanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. 
And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would change our hearts with your word and that you would give us the wisdom, God, and the humility to humble ourselves and submit to you and allow us to be changed, that we would crown you our unrivaled king, that we would submit to your authority and to your power and to your glory and your majesty and your righteousness and your holiness. For God, you are righteous and holy and powerful. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I pray in your mercy and your grace that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill in the preaching, that your word would go out with power. And God, we ask these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you know that story was in the Bible? We love stories, don't we? As stories go, I think this is one of the greater stories that you will ever read. It's so good, in fact, that the Bible tells it twice. You can find it again in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. It's a story about a war between kings. It's a story about a war within kings. It has scenes on earth. It has scenes in heaven. It's got four kings that are all demonstrating their power and their might. It is a story about power and control and self-determination. But as I said last week, as we were looking at Naboth's vineyard, this is everyone's story again. It's an instructive story. It's a picture about the world in which we live. It is a real story that took place, but it illustrates our lives on almost every year that we live. It gives us a glimpse into how the world operates. It's instructive on how God operates in the world in which we live. It's a story that draws attention to the fact that those we understand to be the most powerful people on earth, kings in those days, today we might put presidents or prime ministers or those who have billions of dollars at their, um, uh, at their uh, bequest to use whenever they want, but it's a story 
about how the most powerful people in the world submit to the throne of heaven above and to a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. It's a story about the Word of God, and that's why in the title I said Scripture 101, because it is a basic instruction about the power of the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will stand forever. It's also Theology 101. This is a basic story about God and how God works and how God interacts and intersects the world in which we live. As the writer of Proverbs said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Or another verse from Proverbs 21, a king's heart is a water channel in the Lord's hand. I grew up in, uh, surrounded by boys, I think to my wife's dismay, although she has five granddaughters now. But if you have boys, and I think girls like doing this too, but particularly boys, when it rains and there's water running down the stream or in the backyard, you, I still do it now, and I'm 57 years old. You go out and you turn the dirt so the water goes this way, and you dig that way so the water goes that way, and you, you just have fun channeling the direction of the water. Well, Solomon says about that, a king's heart is a water channel in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So it's Scripture 101. It's Theology 101. It's important for us, finally, to put this story in the context of the last six, cha six chapters of Ahab's life. We've called this a series about Elijah, but it's also a series about King Ahab of Israel. King Ahab hates the Word of God. King Ahab despises the Word of God. And I reminded you last week, and I'll remind you again, this strange verse, verse uh, 34, at the end of chapter 16, which summarizes the reign and the attitude of Ahab to the word of God. And it's the verse that says that the firstborn and the lastborn of anyone who rebuilds the city of Jericho will die. Ahab said, rebuild the city. He didn't give a rip about the word of God. And that characterized his whole reign. He didn't care about the word of God. So this is a story, then, about the Word of God. It's a story about the God of the Word. And it's an illustration of how those intersect in the world in which we live. We come in verses 1 to 9 to this uh, strange scene that's unfolding, and we are confronted with a man. Um, we'll learn a bit more about him in a second, Micaiah. He's another one of God's 7,000. Remember, uh, God had set aside 7,000, which I think is probably not a literal number, but God had set aside 7,000, a comprehensive number of those who would not bow the knee to Baal and those who would not kiss Baal. Micah was another one of those individuals. There'd been a temporary lull in land disputes and battles between kings, but time is up. Ahab is sitting around one day and he's wondering, why don't I have Ramoth Gilead back? It could be simply to make a point. He's the most powerful one. He's the strong one. He wants to get back what's been taken from him. I also think, though, the point here is to make a buck. This is a, a really critical city. It's in the middle of trade routes between the north and the south and the east. And if you controlled this city, you were the one who were able to take the taxes that would be collected as caravans would go through, as goods would come and go. So it was profitable for Ahab to have Ramoth Gilead. Just by some stroke of good fortune, 
Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, is visiting Ahab. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been making an alliance with Ahab, but he had. He had married his son to Ahab's daughter. He shouldn't have been at peace with Israel because God would chastise him for leading the people of Judah into idolatry. But he had been hedging his bets, like many people do. God had blessed him with riches and with wealth and with all manner of evidence that God was with him, and yet Ahab didn't think that was enough. He wanted to have the king of Israel in his back pocket. He wanted to make sure that he had some physical um, help should he run into a difficult situation. His confidence in God needed a little bit of backup. And so he risked the spiritual well-being of the people of Judah in order to align himself with the king of Israel. And he said to him, listen, my resources are yours. My people are yours. We are as one. But he still had an ear for the Lord. And it was fascinating that as they're gathering around and as they're determining to go into battle and uh, Jehoshaphat says to the king of Israel, he says, listen, inquire first of the Lord. It's a fascinating comment. He simply wants to know, well, is God in this? Is God behind this endeavor that we're about to take? Which, as a side note, this is something that we can learn from. How many of us make plans and we have everything sorted out and we have everything on paper and we have, you know, all arranged and we never ask God? We just do it. In the big things and in the little things. At least Jehoshaphat had the good sense to say, listen, this is a pretty big thing we're doing. Let's ask God about this. As they're making these plans, then Elijah's, or uh, Ahab's ticking off a bunch of boxes. Elijah with me? Check. God with me? Check. Because they inquired of God and they had 400 prophets, 400 check marks. It says, yes, let's go into battle. This is a great thing to do. Don't consult Micaiah. Check. Battle engaged at 0800 hours. No check. Because Jehoshaphat pipes up again. There's something that disturbs him about the 400 yes men that are surrounding Ahab and himself. And there's something going on there and he's not quite sure. He's not quite at ease. He's saying something's going on here. These are all paid lackeys of the king. Can 400 of them be certainly right in this situation? It's like he pops Ahab's balloon. He says, literally, literally there he says, is there another prophet of the Lord that we can talk about? Is there somebody that walks with God? Is there somebody that speaks for God that we can ask what we should do in this situation? Which is another helpful thing to us. We can surround ourselves with people that we, we sort of think are spiritual and they will encourage us to do whatever we want. But if we surround ourselves with a man or woman of God, will their advice be the same in the endeavor that's before us? Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, well, there is one guy. Go get him. Or we'll go get him. So as we think about this story, it's an illustration of the prayer that Jesus says. We're supposed to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see the will of God in heaven being worked out on earth. And so we 
here we have this scene now of Joe Serbent is going to fetch Micaiah. The war machine is revving up like it's in full tilt here now as these two kings are preparing for war. It is meant to impress and it is meant to intimidate all at the same time. We have two kings all dressed in their attire. If you've ever seen a king or a queen in their sort of royal attire, it is an impressive sight. And besides that, they've got thrones. They brought their thrones out and they've placed them in the threshing floor at the entrance of Samaria so that everyone who is there will see it. And on top of that, there's 400 prophets that are shouting and, and declaring in unison that God will give them victory, that God will give them victory. That's about three times as many people as are here today, this morning. And on top of that, there's animals being slaughtered left and right as they make sacrifices to God and whoever else they're sacrificing to. And on top of that, there's an illustrative prophecy. This, this Zedekiah guy grabs some iron horns and he makes some gestures about, and horns are symbols of power. And he says, listen, Ahab, this is what you're going to do. You're going to gore the king of Syria. God has given you victory. That is an intimidating scene. That is an impressive scene. And onto the stage watch, walks Micaiah. A man to whom conformity is not an option. It's really difficult to get a sense of the tension here. I don't know if you've ever been in a, situa a situation like that. Where you, you found yourself and everybody and everything is saying, this is what you got to do. And you're asked, what do you think? You're asked, what do you say? You're asked, what are you going to do? You sense the tension in the room. We find it in the Bible in other places. Esther, as she walks into the presence of king and didn't know whether she was going to live or die. Daniel, who, who says, you know what? I don't care what the king has decreed. My allegiance is to God of the three young men who stand before King Nebuchadnezzar on the plane with thousands of people bowing down and bands playing and a furnace being heated up. And yet they say, we really don't care what you say, O king. Our allegiance is to God. Or to John the Baptist who stood before a king and said, your relationship with your brother's wife is not right. Or Peter and the apostles who consistently said, we speak for God, we don't listen to man. Or the parents of the blind man who risked being thrown out of the synagogue, the center of Israelite life, because of what God had done for their son through Jesus Christ. And so as Micaiah comes into this scene, Added to all of this is the nudge, nudge, wink, wink of the officer that's brought him there. It's probably not so much a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, though. Come on, Micaiah. Just this once. Be cooperative. Just this once. Would you go along with what everyone else is saying and what everyone else is doing? But Micaiah knows better, doesn't he? As he says, he says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. You see, he understands that you don't control the word of God. The word of God controls you. That's one of the lessons about the Bible. You don't control the word of God. You don't make the word of God say what you want it to say. The word of God tells you what you are to do and what you are to say. So why this little game then? 
that we find in verses 13 to 16, where all of a sudden, against what we are led to expect, Micaiah says, yeah, go ahead, you're going to win. I think he does it just to drive home a point to the king. The king has already made up his mind. The king really doesn't care what Micaiah has to say. He's demonstrated that time and time again. And on top of that, Micaiah knows what has gone on in heaven. And he realizes that this, this, this spirit of lying has been sent to the prophet, prophets to sort of confirm Ahab's disobedience. And he says, listen, it doesn't matter what anybody says, Ahab. You're going to do what you want to do. He knows that Ahab won't listen to the truth. There had been many of these encounters. The king says it, how, or he says it to him, how many times must I make you swear not to tell me anything but the truth in the name of God? Even though he's disobedient to the word of God, he wants to hear what God has to say. He really doesn't care what God has to say, but he still wants to hear what God has to say. Ahab has demonstrated over his whole reign that he doesn't give a rip about what God's word says and about what God's prophet says. And remember, I have said that God's prophets represent God's word. And so when the prophets speak, God speaks. And what is Ahab's response to King Jehoshaphat when he mentions Micaiah? I hate him because he never prophesies what is good about me. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, I hate the word of God. That's what he's saying. I hate the word of God because the word of God never confirms me in my sin. The word of God never lets me do what my sinful nature wants to do. The word of God is always conflicting. The word of God is always constricting. I hate the word of God. That was Ahab's attitude always to the word of God. Finally, he presses Micaiah and says, listen, for the last time, tell me, what has God told you? And so Micaiah obliges. And it's a difficult word. Consider again the context. Two kings on their throne in royal attire, blood gushing everywhere. 400 prophets saying, yes, yes, you're going to win. And he has the boldness to say, I saw Israel scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Ahab, you're going to die. And they have no master. Just in case you didn't get it the first time, Ahab, here it is the second time. You're going to die. And people are going to return home in peace. They will be at ease when you're dead, Ahab. They're going to be better off without you. Because you're dead. You troubler of Israel. That's not how it's supposed to go, is it? That's not what Ahab really wanted to hear. But that's what God determined was going to take place. I'm not sure as we work through the story, what Jehoshaphat is thinking in his head now. He's really backed into a corner. Here he is, one of the two kings on the throne. He's part of this big scene that's taking place. He's the one that asked for the prophet of God after all. And now he's caught between a rock and a hard place. Do I follow the one? Or do I stick with the 400? And the word of God clearly tells us what he determined to do. He followed the one. I suspect, though, that he did it with a little bit of enticing on Ahab's part. I read it as an attack on Micaiah when Ahab says to him, listen, he never prophesies good about me, only disaster. It's his way of saying, you know, everyone has a person like this in their life. They're always a negative person. They're always a naysayer person. They're always telling me no, no, no. 
You, know, you get tired of it after a while, and this is my tired guy. Don't you see, Jehoshaphat? He has a vendetta against me. He doesn't like me anyhow. He never has liked me. If he liked me, he might once in a while speak what's good about me. But his message is the same. Same old, same old, blah, blah, blah. And he seemed to convince Jehoshaphat to go against the word of God. Loved ones, we see this kind of stuff all the time. We see this kind of pressure all the time in the world in which we live. We see these great conferences that are called around the world, these summits, and they're meant to solve this problem, and they're meant to solve that problem, and before the summit even takes place, they've got the talking points, and they know what they're going uh, to decide, and then they have all these people that gather around and say, yes, this is a great decision. Yes, this is what we're going to do. And woe betide any reporter or anybody who comes with a different voice. And that's just on natural things, let alone spiritual things so on earth man plans but God speaks through his word and then we go to heaven now fascinating scene in verses 19 to 22 and we are meant to see verses 19 uh, to 22 as a contrast with verses 10 to 12 this is Micaiah's way of saying really Ahab who do you think I'm supposed to submit to you or him We've had, we've had Ahab seen described, two kings on two thrones with 400 people and animals slaughtered. And we think, wow, that's pretty intimidating. And then we go to heaven. We see the throne in heaven. And God sitting on the throne in the, all the hosts of heaven. 10,000 times 10,000 beyond number on his right hand and on his left hand. And God guiding and controlling and directing Every single one of them. Loved ones, this is a scene that we're meant to embed in our minds as God's people. This is something that is meant to guide us and help us as we walk our way through this world in which we live. As we face all kinds of difficulty, we need to put on our Revelation 4 eyes or glasses. Remember Revelation 4? I looked and I saw a throne and on the throne one seated. That's what you and I need to regularly, daily remind ourselves in the midst of all the garbage that we swim in, of people strutting their stuff and displaying their power, that God is on the throne and his throne controls earth. I heard. He sees the king on the throne and 10,000 times 10,000 all around him. He hears a question from the king. Fascinating. I wanted to spend a, a while of time on so many spots in the text, but this just gives me at least a little bit of reason to think about how God reigns and how God rules. But he asks a question. God knows what he's going to do. God knows how he's going to do it. But this is how God in his goodness and sovereignty leaves. He asks a question. He says, who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramath Gilead? This is like the interaction we see of, of, of God in uh, Job chapter 1 and 2 as that great scene unfolds in heaven and people are coming into the throne room and presence of God and the Satan also presents himself and God asks him a question and then he says, have you seen my servant Job? God initiates the conversation and the discussion that takes place with the Satan and his servant Job. God is in control. God directs and guides what goes on in earth. And I witnessed this is what Micaiah says. He says, there's this incredible discussion 
took place around the throne of God. I find this dialogue around the throne of God fascinating, the interaction behind, um, behind the scene and how God carries out his will on earth. Uh, there's a number of options that are presented. A number of, of these spirits or these heavenly hosts come before God and say, well, I propose this and I propose that. And finally, one of them comes and says, I will entice them. Catches God's attention, and I say that with all reverence. And God says, how will you do that? He says, I'm going to put a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And then Micaiah is very, very clear. As he talks to Ahab, he says, God, he has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. Such a text like this troubles people. When we don't think rightly about God and we don't consider the whole swath of God's word and we don't consider God's power over evil and we don't think God's control over good and bad, it troubles us. There's a lot of texts that refer to this sort of thing in God's action. We have Pharaoh. Many of you are familiar of the story of Pharaoh and there's two things that take place. Pharaoh hardens his heart and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. There's this hardening that takes place in Pharaoh's own mind and decision making and then there's a judicial hardening that God also pours out on Pharaoh. We find it in the hardening of Eli's sons who were wicked men who, 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 who abused their privileges as priests and it finally says they would not listen to their father because God had determined to put them to death. We find it in the parables. I'm asked from time to time, why don't you tell more stories, Paul? Why don't you use parables like Jesus used? And I take them to a text like Isaiah chapter 6 or uh, Matthew chapter 13. And maybe we'll go to Matthew 13, which is uh, uh, Jesus quoting from Matthew chapter 6. And there in uh, 13, 13, he's asked about his, his uh, parables. And says, uh, he says, and Jesus said to the crowds in parables, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That's not the text I was looking for. Um, that's the wrong book of the Bible. I'll go back to Isaiah. Now I've started, I've got to finish it. So you'll be here an extra 20 minutes. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, and I heard the voice of the Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the judicial, judicial judgment of God on the hardness of men's heart and women's heart towards him. You go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, and after we read there about the coming of the lawless one and the, the perpetual disobedience and rebellion against the truth, finally God says, I will send a strong delusion amongst them so that they will not obey the truth. There's a whole providence of God in the hardening of hearts that follows one's own hardening of their heart towards the word of God. This ought to shake us in our boots if we're rebelling against the word of God, if we're hardening our heart towards the way of God. While these texts expose big issues around the providence of God, there are some things that I think are plain for me, and I point them out to you simply so you have them in your head. The spirit that comes before God, whether it's a good one or an evil one, uh, there's a lot of, there's at least six 
sort of positions that have been proposed, but whichever one one chooses, this much is true. God directs them and uses them to carry out his purposes on earth. That much we ought to be convinced of, that all the hosts of heaven do God's bidding. Evil and good. Secondly, the throne in heaven governs all thrones on earth. There is not a person, there is not an individual, there is not a group, there is nobody on this earth that even comes minutely close to having a say against the word of the throne from heaven. As the writer of Solomon said, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. Loved ones, you and I rarely ever get a glimpse into the throne of heaven like Micaiah had. But despite what we may or may not see, if God is merciful or just withholds to us that privilege of peeling back reality so we can see spirituality, it does not negate the fact that there is a throne, it is occupied by God, and that throne determines events on earth. Thirdly, there's no deceit here at all. God's not pulling the wool over Ahab's eyes. God's not tricking him in any way. God's telling him exactly what he's done and how it's happened and what's taken place. Micaiah is open and honest and forthright with him about that. What we see unfold before us is God acting, as I said, on an unbelieving heart. If you reject the truth, eventually a day will come when all you can believe is a lie when you won't be able to see the truth of God. The prophets of Ahab have been accustomed to telling lies. And so now all they can believe is a lie. They have been judicially sentenced by God to accept evil as if it were good and a lie as if it were truth. Genesis illustrates this precarious situation in the hearts and lives of people. when he says, my spirit will not always strive with men. Come to verses 23 to 37. And we can see how God's will in heaven is now being worked out on earth. Micah's explanation of events is pretty clear. Gives a clear description of what God has determined to do. It's not a deception. Ahab is being told exactly what's going to transpire. But Ahab knows what's in his heart. I, I think every one of us here today knows that. We know what's in our heart. We really do. We know the intents of our heart. We know a lot of the motives of our heart. We know how we twist things. We know how we want things. We know how we get things. We know how we direct things. Ahab wasn't being told anything he didn't already know. Ahab wanted Ramoth Gilead. And God would use that to bring about his punishment. The point is this, though, for Ahab, the truth of God means nothing to him. It's irrelevant to him. It doesn't guide his life. It doesn't direct his life. He doesn't even want to hear it. He hates the word of God. The truth doesn't matter to him. And when the truth of the word of God becomes irrelevant to us, we should be scared to death. I see this from time to time as a pastor, have over the years. Um, Go out for coffee, go out for lunch, meet somebody. And you detect after a period of time that really all they're looking for is you to tell them what they want to hear. 
They've already made up their mind. They've already determined the course that they're going to take. They already know the action they're going to take. In fact, other people have already told them that as well and affirmed that. And they don't really want to hear the truth from you. All they want is an affirmation of what they want to do. It's a dangerous place, loved ones, in our lives that we get to when we don't hear the word of God speak into our lives. The battle is engaged in verse 29. I was thinking, I've been wrestling with this. I've had a couple weeks to think about it. Any idea how Ahab convinced Jehoshaphat to go into battle with him? Doesn't it seem absurd to you now and strange that Jehoshaphat would do that? It must have been some pretty substantial incentive to get Jehoshaphat to go through with committing his resources and his men to a battle that he knew they were going to lose. And then, what must he have thought when Ahab disappears for a couple minutes and comes back and he's looking, where's Ahab go? I'm right here, King Jehoshaphat. What? You look like one of the Joe Blows in the army. That's the whole point. What's he thinking when Ahab disguised himself? You know, in part, it's true because in, in, in battles, one of the things that uh, many times is tried to, you take out the general, you take out the top dog, and the troops scatter. That's a recognized ploy. In fact, David was going to go into battle against Absalom, and all his men said, no, no, you stay here because all they'll be concerned about is killing you, and once they kill you, we're done. So there's some method to his madness. But don't you think there's just a little bit of him saying, ha, ha, I can trick God. God can't see me. God won't know who I am. I'll just look like everybody else. God won't be able to t detect me from this person or that person. Don't we sometimes think that we can outsmart God? Do you sometimes think that God never sees what we bring across the border? In the trunks of our cars? In our purses? Do we think that God never sees, it's tax season, how we fill out our tax returns? Do we think that God doesn't see when we go someplace and it's dark? I don't think Ahab is too much unlike us. And we have these four kings. Fascinating look at these kings. We have the king of Israel hiding He's trying to hide from God. He's got a deliberate plan. I will disguise myself. And what's he thinking? As I've already said, disguise. Do you think really that's going to hide him from the all-seeing eyes of God who looks out upon the earth? Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God at all. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. That's how the wicked think. The wicked person thinks God doesn't see me. And then there's the king of Iran. He plots. He too has a deliberate plan. He says, you know what? I'm going to go get Ahab. He talks to his 32 or chariot guys. He says, listen, focus on Ahab. Find Ahab. It's like find Waldo. You know, there's all these guys. Find Ahab. And the story really is cool because he can't find Ahab. Ahab tries to hide. Ahab thinks he can hide from God, but he succeeds in hiding from the king of Iran. 
but the king of Aram can't find him because he's hiding. And then we have the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, finds himself in a bit of hot water. All of a sudden he finds the whole focus is on him. And you've got to go to uh, the account in Second Chronicles because there it's a prayer. Jehoshaphat cries out. He cries out to God. He cries out to God and he says, Lord, help me. And God helps him. And it says there that God drew them away from him. See how the king of heaven controls the affairs of earth? He hears the prayer of a king in trouble and he draws the men away from him. I don't know how God does that, but he does it. And then you have the king of heaven ruling. A random arrow. No particular target. Just an Israeli soldier somewhere. But this is no um, uh, common arrow. This is a smart arrow. This is a cruise arrow. This is an arrow that has been pointed by God. This is an arrow that reminds us that the word of God is inerrant. It never fails. It always comes to pass. And this random soldier shoots this random arrow, and it happens to find the one place in the king's armor that will kill the king. God's word always succeeds. It never fails. God rules earth from heaven above. And King Ahab doesn't live to see another sunrise. I hope you get the point of this story. It's a great story. It's a true story. It happened. King Ahab's dead. But it's a story that has been recorded for us. Ancient words, ever true. Changing me and changing you. It's a story that wants us to consider carefully the word of God. It's a story that wants us to consider carefully the God of the word. And though everything in the world around us challenges this stuff, we see it worked out again and again in the world around us. So quickly, let me summarize it this way. The main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. The main thing is that the word of God never fails. You see that in verse 38. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word that the Lord had spoken. That is the critical line. According to the word that the Lord had spoken. God had said through three different prophets that Ahab would die. When he, kid, when he killed Naboth, God said, as the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, they will lick up your blood. The reference to the prostitutes is confusing for some. Uh, it seems to imply that the prostitutes washed themselves in the blood of Ahab. I don't think that's what's intended. I think it's saying that the prostitutes prepared themselves for their night's work by washing themselves in the pool of Siloam. And it's another way of saying that when Ahab died, everything went on as usual. The world didn't collapse. Life kept going. The point, though, is again that all this happened according to the word that the Lord had spoken. 
See, Ahab tried to avoid the word of God. Ahab tried to hide from the word of God. Ahab tried to, to ignore the word of God. Ahab lived in rebellion to the word of God. Ahab hated the word of God. But the word of God found him out. So the writer wants you and I to know from this story that if God's word of judgment is true, God's word of promise is also true. If you're clinging to God's words of promise, you're clinging to God's words of hope, know that just as God's word about judgment always come to pass, God's words concerning his promise and hope, and let's say the return of Christ, will also come to pass. Verse 39 is fascinating as well. I think it, it, it emphasizes this point a little bit. There, the writer in Kings summarizes Ahab's life, and he does it in a way which I find fascinating. He says, now, now the rest. It, it's like the really important stuff I've talked about. Now, the rest of Ahab's life, all that he did, the ivory house that he built, the cities that he built, they're not written about in, or they are written about in the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying that Ahab did a lot of stuff. Ahab accomplished a lot, and he's also written in the annals of secular kings of this time. His, his effectiveness in battle, the, and here we're alluded to stuff that he's built. He says, I really don't care about that stuff. That stuff is not really important. What's really important is Ahab's response to the word of God. And that's true to your and my life as well. If we accomplish incredible things, but we do it at the expense of obedience to the word of God, that's not a good thing. He makes that very clear here that the most important thing is we ought to be Matthew 7 people. Particularly the first ones described there. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them read Ahab, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house and it collapsed and its collapse was great. You see, in the end of the matter, loved ones, what really matters is this. How do we stack up besides the, beside the word of God and the commands of God? That's, that's what this passage is wanting us to know. And finally, what really matters is the God of the word. Let me end with reading some scripture. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of my days, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised, and I honored him who lived forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will be accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Loved ones, this universe is exhaustively controlled by God and the throne of heaven. 
May we be convinced and encouraged to know that the one who controls this world is righteous and good, holy, just, perfect, wise in all his ways and in all that he does. And when life looks like it's a mess this side of eternity, to lift up our eyes, stick on our Revelation 4 glasses, and realize there is a throne and it is occupied.